0: Hey everybody, you're listening to another episode of Big Shiny Takes. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Wickham, and I'm joined, as always, by one of my friends, Marino Greco. I'm a friend. (laughs) And my other friend, Jeremy Appel. Hey, how are you, Eric? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking, Jeremy. I feel like you always ask me, and then Marino just is not interested, and he doesn't want to pretend to be interested.
1: I like to riff. I like to do, like, a thing. Anyways... That's I, I like
0: thing. to play with conventions. I'm like the Jean-Luc
2: Godard of of this podcast.
0: That's how I've always described you. Yeah. Um, That's right. Marino's more of a Spielberg,
2: and you're you're Tommy Wiseau, of course.
0: <laughs> Don't give me that much credit. He's a, he's an unrecognized genius. But on that note, we are joined by a very special guest, the author of The Dead Center, co-host of Michael and Us, the podcast, and staff writer at Jacobin. Luke Savage. Luke, welcome to the Big Shiny Takes Institute.
3: Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Um, I don't know. Can I be like the Bergman of the show? Like, (laughs) you guys can all riff, and then I'll just be like very brooding and serious and existential.
0: (laughs) I think that's like a good energy to bring to the show, really. Like, just like, we need more brooding on the show.
3: Well, I I have to say, the article you guys sent along really did get me contemplating the (laughs) silence of God. (laughs) 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 Uh, i do feel
0: bad because like we get people to agree to come on the show and then we send the link to a column and it's always something that is just like irredeemable in the eyes of god really like it's just some awful piece of writing after we make someone read it then we have them on the show to read through the entire thing so apologies in advance but thank you
3: so much for joining us today well cheers uh let's let's get into it i or I have so much to say about this you know i I learned so much uh reading this uh, this incandescent wisdom you sent my way, <laughs> yeah, so this is a column
2: from a guy that I think listeners of our show are quite familiar with, and i you know i I would say he's like not as bad as like your like typical like post media like fucking absolute ghoul but He's also really annoying and bad. Though uh, I mean, every now and then he'll write something decent. I want to, you know, give him his due. Sometimes he does journalism. Very rare. I'm talking about uh, National Observer lead columnist Ezra Levant. <laughs> no.
0: no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, wow, the National Observer have really taken a a pivot. Uh, No, I'm talking about Max Fawcett, who is listed on the National Observer's website as their lead columnist. Can I read you his bio? Oh, please do. On the National Observer website, because I think it probably wasn't written by him, but it could have been. This gives, I think, a good sense of, like, Max and sort of how he's perceived in these, like, capital L liberal circles that he, like, operates in. Max Fawcett is Canada's National Observer's lead columnist. His brilliant essays and opinions are read and valued by millions of Canadians. You're kidding. No, no, no. no. I should, I, like, I can, I can put the link in the chat. It gets better. We're not sure how he finds so much time to write three substantial searing columns a week <laughs> and tweet through the day. Yet, proof that he can and does is vivid on Twitter, where he engages in intense, (laughs) irreverent conversations on politics and policy with a special focus on the Kenny government of Alberta. He is a Calgary original, that's for sure. His National Observer columns are regularly highlighted on National Newswatch. Okay
3: that website that everybody has heard of and uses <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean not to i find I find it to be a very useful aggregator. I just don't think that that many people know about it who don't you know work in the media,
0: yeah, it's like an aggregator, like
3: that's not like a huge accomplishment you know? well, this is
0: this is a very middling bio, right, like even the fact that he's bragging about writing three columns a week, like I don't want to give credit to someone who doesn't deserve any but brian Lilly's writing three a day right now yeah like
2: (laughs) yeah those are rookie numbers
0: max (laughs) he's a lightweight is what (laughs) i'm trying to say
2: he is a lightweight and we'll get to that but i wanted to just max's eloquent writing (laughs) has been published in so many adjectives in this (laughs) it's fucking great um has been published in the globe and mail Macleans, the walrus and cbc and they're missing a comma he has been an executive editor at both Alberta Oil Magazine and Vancouver Magazine. So when Fawcett first came onto my radar, his brand was that he was the former editor of Alberta Oil Magazine. But he, like, supports a carbon tax, so he, like, is a climate campaigner, apparently. Half the time, I don't disagree with him. Like, when he goes after the conservatives, I mean, you know, obnoxious, gotcha, um, stunts. But, I mean, he's not always wrong. Then you get to his left punching. He's a masterclass in just punching left. Anyone who thinks the liberals should actually do stuff is just insane and unrealistic and they're just as bad as the far right. He was a speechwriter to Jean Chrétien in 1997. And he likes to talk about winning elections, how that as a as a political columnist, that's his goal to win elections for like the liberals federally in the NDP in Alberta.
3: Winning an election for the federal liberal party in the 1990s is like, I mean, it's like I, I, I'm not sure there's like, I think it would have been quite an art to like lose an election <laughs> as the liberals in the 1990s. Like that would have been more impressive. <laughs> Well, and if I'm not
2: mistaken, he was a speechwriter for a guy named Jean Chrétien. So, all those Chrétien speeches, just eloquent that, speeches, prepared speeches he gave that you remember, um, you got to give Max credit for yeah. those. Bar- just barn. Burners. I think you
0: really like nailed it on the brief bio on Max Fawcett. All I would add is that he is a specific brand of Canadian columnist, one that is. Very common and incredibly annoying. They sort of managed to make a career out of saying nothing while being incredibly annoying at the same time, right? Like he is a smug bastard.
1: Oh, dude. I'm glad you said all that, because I learned of Max Fawcett through this podcast. Uh, you know, I guess like a Calgary figure through Jeremy, yada yada. And I guess he's been explained to me as this left-punching, er-centrist figure, you know. And something about people like this, the things that he writes, I didn't even know he worked for the National Observer. and Like, I forgot until
0: today. It's like psychic vampire shit just goes right over my head. One caveat to the thing that I was saying, the only time that Max Fawcett ever said anything was while he was employed by the Alberta NDP, which I feel like is an important thing to say because he's like... Deeply partisan for the Alberta NDP and provincial politics, but he got suspended from work one time for calling a school shooting survivor a cuck-servative, and then he was given leave. I think it was Kyle Kashuv, who was actually kind of a conservative commentator, not a good guy.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The MAGA guy. He was yeah. the MAGA parkland survivor but yeah he called him a fragile conservative <laughs> and then there's a huge like news cycle out of it it actually kind of yeah, rocks. Yeah, yeah. like i i want more of that max mm-hmm. oh and um i would say that i think he aspires to be toby from veep for christy freeland Um <laughs> He is like her number one booster. Like just Google Max Fawcett, Christian Freeland. And uh, I mean, you know, I think it tells you a lot about his worldview. So
0: Luke, we've been throwing a lot of Max Fawcett info at you. Um, Is there? Fawcett facts. Fawcett facts. Yeah. It's a segment on our show, actually.
2: Oh, he also, I'm going to mention too, he had a Palestine flag emoji in his name for a bit last year. In, when people asked him how he reconciles his like love of Christy Freeland with his apparent uh, support for Palestine, he was like, what are you talking about? Christy Freeland's pro-Palestine. Uh. Which I think is quite funny. <laughs> he ended up replacing the Palestine flag with a Canada flag. So I'm glad that he's uh, standing uh, now with the oppressed people of Canada. I think he genuinely believes that.
1: I just think he has a different idea of what pro-Palestine means.
2: Yeah, it's literally voting for a single UN resolution out of, like, 16 yeah. that has no teeth and continuing business as usual with Israel that's being pro-Palestine in this, like, capital liberal imagination. That faucet is emblematic of. Okay,
0: so we've said a lot about Max Fawcett. Uh, Luke, have you ever come across this character in your travels out in the Canadian media sphere?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not as familiar with him as you guys. I don't know this whole uh, uh This is a deep, a deep history. I mean, frankly, it's a very dark place. So I'm glad that I'm glad I'm only I'm only vi- I feel like I'm just in the antechamber of like, you know, something a very sinister place. And, uh, you know, uh, like you guys are trapped in there. And, and I think I, I still have uh, time to escape. But uh, I, You know, I think you can't spend time on on Twitter or like write about Canadian politics without you know, you, you get to know the pundits, the constellation of, you know, voices who uphold, you know, what, what we call the national conversation. And um, I mean, Jeremy, you're gonna have to share that, like an image of that bio in the chat, because I kind of refused to believe I'm gonna need to see hard <laughs> evidence that that's real. I mean, like, That's like David Brent, like, telling the reporter, like, in the office, like, to write, like, you know, David Brent is refreshingly relaxed for a man (laughs) with such responsibility. Like, (laughs) like, that's like, it's like when you if you have like a an acquaintance or something who is uh, who was in like two movies as an extra and then you go to their IMDb page And then there's like inexplicably like 10 paragraphs about, you know, (laughs) you know, how how they're like an upcoming like talent that a lot of people are talk. People are saying people are talking about. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'm going as as I'm saying this, as I'm calling this into question, I just clicked on the link. And I mean, unless you guys like took over the National Observer website and like planted this there to play a prank on me, uh, this certainly looks genuine. That is that is remarkable his brilliant essays and opinions are read and valued by millions of canadians so now yeah, the right. they
0: did a poll
3: yeah they're read and also valued and then i mean millions of canadians i mean i don't think millions of canadians could name the lieutenant governor of ontario like i like <laughs> like i i don't know it's like i spend like hours each day like looking at twitter and it's like i've like i've only just heard of this guy like, have you ever read a bio like that? Well, yeah, like on, on IMDb pages of <laughs> like people who were an extra in a movie. That's what it I mean, just like, yeah, the bombardment of adjectives that hits you as you read this intense, irreverent, substantial, searing. It's like you can't just have like a sentence can't just have a subject. It has to have like two or three intensifiers attached to that subject related to like value quantity acclaim <laughs> like it's like how many things can we pile on top i mean he wrote this like <laughs> it has yeah. to be him
0: because like anybody else would be very embarrassed but also like just deep tobias funke energy coming off that bio
2: well linda solomon would, to be fair the editor-in-chief of uh the national observer who created it and presumably hired max flasso is very dull so um, so I mean it could have been her. I think it probably was, but I mean, just the fact that it's conceivable that uh Fawcett wrote these things about himself is uh telling.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm becoming a truther here, but it's like the way that this is written is like, you know, that kind of bullshit style you have to write in if you do like a cover letter for a job or something, yeah. but then it's like that, but then if you wrote it in the third person. Like, uh, and, and, and you laid it and you laid it on like, like a bit too thick. Like it's quite possible that like, you know, like I've, I've, you know, this guy is like pretty widely read. I, I, I think, and it's like, I, you know, within, within the Canadian, uh, you know, uh, media sphere or whatever, I, d- I don't think millions of Canadians read and value his work. I mean, to say that about any, like any writer in Canada would be like, a. You know, uh, like people reading newspapers don't read bylines. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're not talking about Michael and Dache or something like we're talking about <laughs> like a guy who whose columns appear on National Newswatch. So it's like millions of people is uh, seems like a stretch. But just I feel like even if you really admired somebody, you wouldn't write about them in this way. But we may never know. <laughs> but I, I'm getting certain vibes from this. I have to say the truth is out there. I will say that. But we should probably talk about the column that
0: we're going to get into momentarily. Um, and it's about And and this
3: this isn't by Max Fawcett, right? This is Jonathan Swift.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna read a modest proposal. No, this this column is by Max Fawcett, unfortunately. But it is uh about one of Max Fawcett's favorite topics, which is uh horseshoe theory, which he refers to throughout the piece as the horseshoe theory have you guys heard of this horseshoe theory
3: i mean have i have i heard of it
2: <laughs> people like Fawcett won't shut the fuck <laughs> up about it that right you have you know jokers clowns to the left of me jokers to the right and uh, you know i am above the fray right it's like it's the ultimate in uh triangulation but um i think uh luke would have a much more interesting take on that as uh, he's written a book
3: well i mean horseshoe theory it's interesting because it's so stupid i mean you you because it's it's you you know you think if you're just a if you're like a reasonable person who hasn't been kind of like brain poisoned by like twitter centrism or whatever or somebody who just like has been like so totally freaked out by like things like donald trump and brexit that you are uh receptive to this kind of thing like it just it just strikes you as so stupid like when I first encountered this, I just thought, well, how can any serious person believe that like there's no moral difference between like somebody who supports like free tuition and somebody who like wants a theocracy? Like it seems so obvious. So you're forced then to to ask the next question, which is like, OK, so then how does anybody believe in this? And I think that At least one answer, especially like in the Canadian context, is that like, if you are a Canadian liberal, you are always going to be presented with like a very particular and very daunting kind of psychological dilemma that is like inherent in that as a political identity. Because you have to, you know, unlike an American liberal, where like, there's no tradition that is like to your left that has like, you know, people that are on the left in the United States are often just Mm -hmm. thought of as liberals. That's like started to change, obviously, in, in like the past decade. And you know, if you go back far enough, there's like, American communism had, like, a broad base. American socialism uh, had a broad base. But but basically, like, you don't have to... There's no, like, party to the left of the Democratic Party with any power or cultural influence. And, like, in Canada, you have an established tradition of, like, Canadian, you know, democratic socialism or social democracy that has had parliamentary representation since the 1920s or, you know, 1930s. So you have, you're going to have people to your left, some of them who are... Considerably to, the, to your left, some of whom are maybe actually like not super left wing, but you know are to your left and are going to criticize you, and so that I think creates a bit of an existential dilemma because you have to both double down on the idea that the liberals are a progressive party, right? That they're a party of the left, like they were actually the architects of Medicare. I don't know if you guys have heard. You know, there's not a progressive achievement that the liberal party does not have its uh, stamp on, and. At the same time, like the whole identity of being a liberal, especially today, is all about like, I'm a moderate, I'm reasonable, like I stand atop like a little fort on an island of decency, like besieged by extremes of the right and the left. And so like there's an obvious tension between those two identities. And I feel like horseshoe theory is the way that you resolve it because it allows you to to actually portray the differences between, you know, yourself and others to your right and your left as differences of temperament. You know, they're not really differences of ideology, right? Like the problem is liberals, a lot of them, I think, really have started to believe that people to their left are, as I think Mackenzie King originally said, just liberals in a hurry in terms of like the things they actually want to achieve or do or see actualized in the world. And so for them, it's like, Horseshoe theory allows them to pathologize their critics, especially on the left, and be like, well, you just don't understand that change takes time. And, and like, I want to have universal health care, but there's different models, the private sector can can help, you know, deliver those things, not ascribing that view necessarily to the author of the piece we're discussing, but this is an example of the kind of argument you get, particularly in the United States. It's like, let's not be dogmatic about this. We all believe in universal health care, which is why the market has a role to play or whatever. And I think that's why horseshoe theory is so useful is because it makes politics into a binary that is not an ideological binary. It's a binary of like temperament and affect, which like, so often that is the ground liberals want politics to beyond anyway so i think that's how i understand horseshoe theory uh and yeah it's fucking irritating stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah it's it's west wing brain
3: yeah also like just the feeling that okay
0: the the centrist is the only reasonable person in the room they're the they're the adult mm-hmm. everybody else is a child and any of your ideas are actually just completely unrealistic because you haven't thought it through the way that the liberals have
1: yeah it seems to me as like a cope And a way of explaining away, you know, I just think specifically of Justin Trudeau's failings, why the sunny way is never really panned out, or why, you know, you can be a Christia Freeland fanboy with the Palestine flag in your bio. It just helps us explain away those contradictions.
3: I once had an argument with a different uh, Canadian pundit uh, in 2016 who actually argued to me this is the position he was defending. I, I'm. This is not a bad faith rendering of it. I swear to God. The position he was taking was that there is there was no ideological difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. The only difference between them was that she represented, you know, a, a broad, you know, diverse, you know, base of support, and he represented, as this person uh, put it, uh, the old white trade union left. So I think that is again, it's just an anecdote, but. But like what, what experiences like that, what exchanges like that say to me is that some liberals actually can't like process the idea that there are like people operating in good faith to their left. Like you can imagine a different kind of world where liberalism was understood to be like one political identity among others that, you know, within reason are considered legitimate, or at least there can be like some exchange of ideas, some conversation between them. But like, that's not what's going on in a claim like, Uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are the same saying that is like a way of actually just like pushing aside the idea that's like well no they're not the same and Bernie Sanders is to Hillary Clinton's left because I think this fellow would would not like he just doesn't want to contemplate the existence of people to his left in a serious way
2: who who is this pundit
0: we name names
2: (laughs) uh,
3: (laughs) yeah doxel I mean it's it's It, yeah, I mean, it's whatever. Yeah, it, where's he live? <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Bernie
1: Sanders haters were on another level.
3: Oh, yeah. And, and, and Max
2: was big into that as well. He was he in fact, this is actually a good example of uh, Max Fawcett's like big uh, liberal pundit brain is he floated as a compromise candidate in, in 2020. Uh, Michael Bloomberg.
3: I mean, that is like amazing. What I love about the Bloomberg shit or like the howard schultz the like very brief and not really existent howard schultz of starbucks presidential campaign or or like what andrew yang is trying to do now like as somebody who writes a lot about liberals like that kind of shit like tickles me in such a specific way because you know you deal with like you know i argue with like democrats all day or whatever or or canadian liberals you know big and small l who like at least have a partisan identity that they attach to it. And then you you go with someone like, you know, Bloomberg, you get you get into that mindset. And it's like, OK, so here it's like, let's strip all the remaining politics away from politics. Like there there can't be anything left. Like, let's just get like a billionaire Republican who was mayor of a liberal city, like a blue city to be the candidate or whatever. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, I almost respect that. <laughs> I don't. But, you know, <laughs>
2: yeah there's something about its shamelessness that uh feels
0: real you know, very genuine really <laughs> um, bite into it yeah
2: <laughs> but um I think we should uh start uh reading through this uh this piece um we like to give our guests the option of reading it um if they would like to would you like to luke
3: sure i'll I'll read this um and like, uh, I guess you guys can jump in or or I can I can pause to digress. I mean, there's a there's a yeah. risk inherent in asking me to read it because uh, I feel like I'm going to have so many uh, so much to say about yeah, it. But feel free to stop at
0: any point. Um, we'll jump in if there's anything that really sticks out to us. But we usually go line by line. And
3: All right. So to begin. In the three conservative leadership races and nearly seven years that have transpired since Stephen Harper took his drubbing in the 2015 election, the prevailing formula for those trying to replace him has been the same. Campaign on the right to win the leadership, then pivot to the center in time for the general election. Both Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole tried this approach, and it took them within spitting distance of forming government. But Scheer couldn't quite sell the pivot, and O'Toole pivoted so abruptly they ended up bleeding support from his true blue backers to the People's Party. Now, I think you can question the... Parts of this are debatable at the level of detail, but I think that's mm-hmm. basically a correct rendering of, the, like, the last two Tory leadership races. Like, Sharon O'Toole, you know, both just, like, did the very cynical thing of, like, you reach out to all the interest groups within the Tory coalition, and you give them, like, their little boutique menu of, like, you know, you here's a little bit for the social conservatives and f- for the gun fanatics, like, whatever... And then it's like then when when they're leader of the party and they have a different constituency, they're just like, OK, time to win over like middle of the road, like suburban people in like the GTA by just like, you know, talking about like tax credits for your kids hockey equipment. And like, I'm a dad and you know whatever. So, you know, we're, I'm, I'm with this so far. Uh, for months now, political watchers have been trying to figure out exactly when and how Pierre Poilievre will start making a similar move. Could he even manage uh, that pivot back to the middle after he'd embraced the Freedom Convoy and traded in conspiracy theories about the World Economic Forum? No.
2: <laughs> the World Economic Forum is great and must be defended at all costs. <laughs> it's, it's funny that uh,
1: this is written in this way because I never had any doubt that Pierre was the real deal.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a there you an know, interesting question here about, like, I personally think that Polyevra is is he's difficult to he's difficult to write about in a correct and balanced way because he's simultaneously like I believe that he does he is trying to do a different strategy than like Sheer O'Toole, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, he's you know, he's not a Trump figure. He's not like storming the ramparts, the Conservative Party. He's like as establishment of figure. He had massive support in caucus. Like it's just it's not the same thing. So I don't know. Uh that's uh You know, I don't know that 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 makes him, uh, you know, I think a somewhat complicated uh, subject to to write about. But anyway, uh, our our intrepid columnist has posed the question and let's continue. I think he's going to answer it. The answer, as is now becoming abundantly clear, is that he never even he never intended to even try. Instead of trying to win over current liberal voters or red Tories, his campaign is building a new kind of conservative coalition, one that bridges the right with younger voters on the far left. (laughs) so yeah that's definitely what if you watched the tory convention the other day where they had like i don't know like like four minutes about the queen to every like one minute about the leadership race you could tell that the the outreach here was to like twitter communists and Mm -hmm. and like people with rose emojis in their bio you know readers of like Canadian dimension and Jacobin—that's yeah. definitely what's going on well, here.
2: You—you you, you must have missed—they were chanting uh, "Free, free Palestine" on the convention floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was wild. I—I I never, I never expected. I it.
0: saw um, a live stream reaction to Pierre's acceptance speech after he had won won the nomination, and it kept cutting to the crowd, and it was a very well-aged group of people that were very excited about Pierre. A lot of silver haired folks in that audience.
3: Yeah. And I mean, it'll be really interesting to see a breakdown of like, like I want to know, because like, the fact is, like, the, they, they've they sort of signed up more people largely because of Paulie Everett than have ever voted in the leadership race before. So that is genuinely uh, concerning and also something that needs to be studied very carefully. You know, having said that, like, the question I think is still open as to where exactly, you know, like, it wasn't it just the case that, like, Okay, like a hundred thousand people signed up in Alberta, and they're ju- you know, and and you know, lots of people who were involved in the convoy like did seem like they were people who like hadn't really been too involved or engaged in politics before, and you know, they were politicized over this one issue. So you know, when Pierre, as leader of the Conservative Party, is like doing the whole the thing that you do as leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party, where you're just talking about like boring shit all day and it's no longer like buying shawarma with Bitcoin and talking about mask (laughs) mandates. Uh, Like, you know, are they going to stay engaged? Well, we'll have to we'll have to see.
2: Sorry, but that photo of uh, Pierre uh, blowing like a fat shisha cloud um, (laughs) while uh, talking about Bitcoin is like seared in my consciousness. Anyways, continue.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, they're like, Again, like I do think that polyevra like, he's trying something different than Sheer and O'Toole. But again, it's complicated because for every like little populist flourish he does that I think might be effective, he does stuff like that where it's like you're watching you're like this is like a Tim and Eric sketch. Yeah, like yeah, this yeah. is <laughs> like this is this is surreal and it's like it's weird. Like it's like the kind of it's the kind of, it like radiates a weirdness. That like is, you know, born of like, just like being within the pretty cloistered conservative movement for like 25 or 30 years or whatever. And it's only legible if you've already like absorbed like a million hours of like Jordan Peterson videos <laughs> and like, you know, shit from libertarian think tanks about like, you know, the need to bring back the gold standard or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> all right. So, you know, Max has made this uh, claim here, but now he's going to justify it. Um This isn't as crazy as it sounds. As Ian Higgins wrote in The Atlantic last year, there's a significant population of anti-vaxxers on the political left, ones who might be attracted to Polly Everett's pro-freedom anti-mandate message. Quote, these crunchy anti-vaxxers are coalescing into a loose political group that is targeting COVID health measures and restrictions as indicative of governmental overreach and medical tyranny. This is uh, from the pieces quoting. They're also predictably falling down far right rabbit holes. Now, I don't want to I don't want to digress too much on this, but something I I do want to say just about the claim that's being made Mm -hmm. here is like people do change their political persuasion. So if somebody on the left is falling down a far right rabbit hole like what that says to me is that like they're they're becoming right wing like yeah (laughs) yeah and that's also that's also
2: what oh the point like i'm familiar with owen higgins's work and that's the point he's making he's not saying right like he's referring to like people who watch like jimmy Dore, you know right who would you know ostensibly be on the left but you know and he sort of Reels people in through being like ostensibly anti-war and whatever. And then and then he has like a boogaloo boy on to talk about how, um you know, we have the same goals, right? It's a fundamentally like right-wing project. It's not like a both sides thing. And I think that was the point Higgins tried to get across because I was quite surprised Max quoted him. Because that's not what
0: he's saying. This is this was a talking point that Fawcett had earlier on in the pandemic as well, that there were anti-vax sentiments on the left and the right. And it's like those people aren't left wing. They're hippies like that's a that's a different thing.
2: Like there were there were like there was an interesting piece, I think it was in the National Post, actually, or maybe it was the Calgary Herald, but one of those papers about people who were shifting their allegiances from the Greens to the People's Party. But that says more about the Greens than it does about the People's Party.
3: Deliberately or not, Polly Ever's campaign is drawing on something called the Horseshoe Theory which suggests that, I mean, there's, I don't think Paulie ever would know what that is. I mean, it's like, it's not a theory. It's, like- it's not like a thing political strategists do. It's not like a, there's not like horseshoe theory as praxis. It's like a, it's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Twitter meme and something that people like myself, like use to describe like a dumb impulse that like, you know, certain people have, but yeah, I, he's drawing on something called the horseshoe theory. I mean, it's like <laughs> it's like he's trying to make horseshoe theory like
1: a thing. He's trying to like get it to enter the public consciousness to like justify his like online arguments or something. It's
3: there's know. it's it, there's not a like there's not like a manual that's like you know uh, <laughs> Sun Tzu's guide to horseshoe theory like yeah. like. Machiavelli like you know it's yeah this very stupid Um, so uh, the horseshoe theory which suggests the extreme left and extreme right aren't actually at opposite ends of a linear spectrum but instead bent towards each other at their extremes Uh, so it is true in a strict sense that that is a geometrically correct description of the shape of a (laughs) two dimensional horseshoe on a page I, I don't think that that's enough to substantiate this as an argument but let's press ahead a little further after two years of a pandemic, one that is has weakened trust in government institutions and expertise on both the right and the left, it may, might be the perfect time to test that theory. OK, so we'll get some. That's what, you know, Isaac Newton did. You know, like that's like like we're going to get some inductive inductive science at work here. The most recent results of a regular abacus data poll back that up. <laughs> it showed an 11 point swing in Conservative Party of Canada support among 18 to 29 year old voters. With most of the change coming at the expense of Jagmeet Singh's NDP, while the party dropped from 31 percent support in that demographic back in January to just 21 percent in July, the CPC surge from 21 to 31 percent support for the liberals only dropped to a single point to 29 percent. So I'm a little confused. I mean, it sounds like what he's describing is like a pretty ephemeral shift in in opinion as measured in you know a couple of opinion polls, yeah. but perhaps there was some nuance I missed well, it's also like he's framing the
0: n d p as the absolute <laughs> extreme end of the horseshoe in his in his little diagram, right like well, not just NDP jug meat sings yeah NDP. which i mean if if we're actually going to accept horseshoe theory as an actual thing. Ah, uh, the NDP, the Liberal Party, and the Conservative Party would all be at the handle where you would be holding the horseshoe, kind of right in the middle there, right? Like it, it just it's preposterous to to use this as an example.
3: There's something else about this type of claim that I'm a little suspicious of. I mean, If I was to put to our intrepid author that there are lots of people who Doug Ford owes his majority in Ontario to who also vote liberal federally, and I then said, well, we can extrapolate from that that the Canadian Liberal Party federally is like indistinguishable from Doug Ford. Like, I don't think that that would be (laughs) like considered a valid or a legitimate argument. It's like there can be there can be shifts in terms of like support among particular demographics between different parties, and sometimes they can be lasting and sometimes they can be ephemeral. But like, if those are serious, then those are ideological shifts. So that's not like that doesn't tell you that like that. Again, it tells you people are moving from left to right or from right to left. I don't I don't think it tells you much more than that. It doesn't mean like, while the reason these people moved is because actually there was no difference to begin with. If the claim is that they moved, they moved somewhere. So there is a difference.
0: Well, I am going to use your example as um basis for my column about why fish hook theory is real, and I will be pitching it to the National Observer. So we'll see how it goes.
3: This could be statistical noise, that rare outlier poll that crops up roughly once in every 20 times, but it's far more likely that Poliev's relentless messaging about economic freedom and opportunity, and particularly his line of attack on housing prices and and the people allegedly responsible for them, is resonating with a generation that feels like it can't catch a break. Partial credit for this unexpected political realignment belongs to Singh, whose own willingness to trade in populist rhetoric seems to be backfiring. Like Polyev, he's been talking a lot about inflation lately, which I guess we're just not supposed to do. Uh, And like Polyev, he's more than happy to blame elites for it. Uh, And then there's a, a quote from a tweet of Jigmeet Singh's, Ottawa elites are enraged by the NDP proposal to send inflation relief to struggling families, but silent when billions in corporate welfare are handed out. So I love that as I mean, that is a perfectly reasonable statement (laughs) that he just quoted. And he's quoting it as an example of like, this is the kind of dangerous demagogy that we're seeing on the left (laughs) and the right. I mean, uh, it's it's pretty extraordinary. So I guess the implication here is that like, by talking about inflation, which I mean, is like a pretty live public issue. I don't know why you're not supposed to talk about that by like suggesting that it has causes and perhaps even culprits and that we're not dealing with it in an even handed way. Like that is creating like the ground on which Polly Ever is now like seeding his dangerous uh, agenda or something. Also, he makes it like,
2: like Singh's rhetoric on this it didn't just come out of nowhere. He's responding to the fact that poliev is is creating this like populist coalition right it's not you know it's not like these guys are saying the same thing for the same reason therefore we just need to support the liberals and uh do nothing about inflation and just tell people that uh they're just not working hard enough you know he makes it sound like jagmeet singh is like a nazbol
3: i mean this is one of the other problems with horseshoe theory is that it can't account for the fact that like the reasons somebody takes a political position on something or is like, you know, politician X is critical of institution Y, like the reason is actually significant, even if like, you you can make an argument that the position being taken is the same, right? It's like, there are certain things that conservatives want to use the state to do. But like the fact that they want to use the state and then socialists also want to use the state for certain things doesn't mean the positions are like, The same like it's or that the you know motivations for them is the same like it's just this type of that type of argument uh which you find in horseshoe theory a lot is just again it's just nonsense what polyev
0: is talking about here is inflation and he's talking about housing prices being out of control and neither of those those two issues he's presented any like left-wing solution he's just talking about issues that canadians are facing which is politics
3: And that gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning, where it's like, fundamentally, this is not about like ideology. This is about like affect and like the language we use. It's like just the mere fact of talking about inflation and blaming someone for it is even if like the solutions being proposed are completely different, like Pauly ever solution, right on inflation or the one he was one of the ones he's kicking around during the leadership race is completely insane. Right. It's like, yo, you can opt out by like fucking putting your savings into <laughs> Ethereum <laughs> or something like, like buy your shawarma with Bitcoin. Like, like I'm pretty sure that there isn't a constituency for that. on like the social democratic or socialist left like I'm pretty sure people like think like the problem is like well there's a lot of corporate greed and and there's a lot of profiteering that's happening that is allowing prices to be inflated and that you know maybe if we had a stronger social safety net inflation wouldn't matter as much because like people would have their basic needs taken care of. I'm pretty sure that's the analysis but you know um i there's, there's just maybe the piece just has too many levels for me
1: <laughs> this one time uh i saw a copy of our local paper down in my parents hometown of richmond hill uh just north of toronto the local paper is called the liberal and it was like a municipal election or something and the the headline read candidates differ on ways to improve residents lives which i thought was a very
3: good definition of <laughs> politics <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to have to like uh, marinate on that one for a while. That's, <laughs> I feel like that's like getting at something really primal. I've never I, I would love to if you can if you can find that headline, send it to me like that. It reminds me of like that old joke about how like bills in the British parliamentary system like over time just got like more and more ridiculous names where like. Things that used to just be called, like, have some kind of neutral sounding title became, like, the Fewer Politicians Act, the, like, Cleaning Up Our Streets Act. And then, you know, like, you know, the the old joke was, like, there should just be one bill and it should just be called an Act for the General Welfare. (laughs) 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 All right. uh, So we're getting to, like, Act Three of the piece here. Um, Where we left off is, yeah, complaining about, um, you know, NDP uh, comments on inflation. But this is like trying to bring people to a party someone else has been hosting. Polyever owns the inflation issue, and he's been hammering harder and more effectively on the cost of living concerns that most Canadians are feeling lately than the NDP, which is theoretically supposed to be the party representing working class and lower income voters. So again, so shouldn't he be talking about inflation? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that, that would seem to be the takeaway there. Um, as the National Post's Sabrina Mado wrote in a recent column, the Poly Ever camp is, quote, stealing left-wing populace for an NDP more interested in performative social justice than real economic justice. When it comes to winning over younger generations who now make up the largest share of potential voters, this, must just, uh, this may just be the ticket to 24 Sussex. So uh, here's a complaint I'd like to issue here, which is not so much about the piece, but about some of the commentary around Polyever, which has really annoyed me for a number of reasons. But I feel like the Evera camp has been sort of telling this story themselves and kind of they're interested, like they have an interest, right? And be like, like, it's a youth quake. We're eating the NDP's lunch. Like we're, we're winning over like new voters. And like, you know, that might be true in a limited way, like in, you know, or we'll have to wait and see what the demographics of the conservative leadership vote were. I haven't seen any clear data on that yet. But the fact is, like, this is a narrative that they're trying to push. Mm-hmm. And I feel like mm-hmm. if you read the punditry on... The Polly Ever campaign, like some of it is actually like perfectly well meaning and it's people trying to be like even handed and fair minded and trying to understand what's going on. But like it ends up, I feel like in some cases, just sort of recycling or regurgitating like a narrative that the Polly Ever campaign is itself seeding. It's like if you go back to an actually far stupider Tory leadership race, the 2017 one, I guess, right, where Kelly Leach was running, right? Like, Kelly Leach's campaign just, like, started putting exclamation marks at the end of her tweets and sort of being like, oh, she's doing a populism. <laughs> and and, then, and the Canadian media, like, I think by and large, like, picked up on that. And she's all of a sudden, she's on the cover of Macleans, And there's, like, a thing that's like how Kelly Leach, like, touched off a culture war. And it's like the culture war wasn't happening. Like, mm-hmm. Kelly Leach came in, like, seventh or eighth. Like, nobody voted for her. Like, she, she was, as she appeared, like a... Pretty like neophyte politician who like had a background in medicine and was constantly like boasting about like how many degrees she had and how many letters she had after her last name and how she didn't have to substantiate arguments because she was published on this in a peer-reviewed journal. And I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't strike me as very populist <laughs> to me. It's kind of the opposite. But like her campaign, which I think Nick Cavallis was involved in, was interested in pushing that as a as a narrative. And the media just kind of picked it up uncritically. And I think that a version of that is maybe um, happening here. Well,
0: I mean, like, Pierre has been a politician since the ripe old age of 24. I think he's been an MP since then. And so, like, he's not a populist either. Like, he is part of the political establishment in this country. And it is so funny to watch the media go, well, this guy seems to be... Tapping into something here,
2: yeah. the breach actually had a great video uh, on it that came out the other day.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a whole you know, there's the debate around populism and what it is and like what we mean by it is like a pretty complicated one. Like, I guess I'm willing to I'm willing to concede the idea that like to some extent populism is a style, and so Paulievra e. is engaging in it when he's like appealing to sort of like extra parliamentary like you know groups of people who are like. Setting up camp on Parliament Hill and stuff like that, uh, which, like, you know, Aaron O'Toole or, or Andrew, she- you know, Andrew Shear, I don't think would have been willing to do that. Shear was pretty sympathetic to the convoy, but like, I don't think he would have done that as leader. So it's like, I'm willing, again, this is why Polly Ever is complicated. I'm willing to admit that like there are things, you know, I'm willing to argue that there are things about Polly Ever that make him different, as, you know, Max uh, Fawcett thinks from like Shear O'Toole. But it's like, I also don't want to give him too much credit because it's like he's, you know, as, as you guys were just saying, he's like this guy. I mean, he radiates like just pure like campus conservative vibes. <laughs> he's like a he's not an outsider. He's a political insider. And like we shouldn't lose sight of that.
2: Just one thing I I wanted to point out about sort of this maneuver Fawcett's doing, which I think is very typical of this, uh, you know, big brain centrist is he's quoting a right wing National Post columnist to beat up on someone I mean Jagmeet Singh's not even that left wing it's just to the left of Max Fawcett and I think that is very typical of this centrist mindset like really they just want to be the most progressive person in the room and so they're willing to team up with a uh, conservative ideologue to demonstrate how anyone to the left of them is just insane and they're doing like uh performative woke politics as if like the liberal party doesn't (laughs) And I just thought that that was quite noteworthy yeah. that he's invoking a national post columnist to um, make his dumb argument.
3: Yeah. And I mean, if I can just get a, a plug in for my my book here, I mean, uh, I do talk about horseshoe theory in the book and uh, something that comes to mind here in, in which I want to get in, you know, at, at, as we come to the end of the column is, you know, like a further thing I'd say about horseshoe theory is that you know, it actually, you know, it is about affect and temperament and like just, you know, these very superficial categories, but there is an ideological component as well, which is that particularly after 2016, when you did have like a type of populism that was like flourishing on the right. And then at the same time you have, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, and and that insurgency, and you have like this, you know, younger people who are getting interested in socialism you have a lot of discontent with liberal capitalism and like the liberal order generally and so like a lot of what's going on with this stuff is actually like there's a fear it's like well don't turn people against institutions like that's dangerous we need to keep the system going there's nothing wrong with it and an article that always has interested me and i cited a lot but i don't think anyone really noticed it that uh, is a testament to this is one that Justin Trudeau well, it was published under under his name in uh, in the Globe and Mail, I think in the business section or something back when he was like still a humble leader of a third party. And it like ostensibly what the piece was uh, was it was about like Justin Trudeau like stakes out ground like oh the need to tackle inequality. And if you actually read the piece, it's very interesting what he says. What he says basically like more affluent Canadians need to understand that if there's like a perception of unfairness in our economy lower and middle income Canadians will withdraw their support for growth agenda. That's the phrase he uses. He says, they will start to look for like comforting scapegoats to blame for their problems. And they will, and they will look to parties who propose like easy solutions, like raising your taxes or whatever. So actually (laughs) the argument is like, is like, look, guys, we have to talk about inequality, but that's to save all of this. Like that's not to change Uh, You know, this order in any way or modify it. It's like we're just doing it to keep the system going. So that's at the center of horseshoe theory as well is actually like a deep seated fear of like, democratic politics of any kind. Um, Yeah. All right. So to finish the finish the, the piece here. If there's one thing about young voters, though, is that it can be difficult to get them to actually show up and vote. Just ask the federal NDP. Yeah, fair enough. There are no guarantees. <laughs> Polyever's horseshoe strategy will continue to pay dividends as COVID-19's most onerous restrictions move further back, uh, further into our collective rear view, or that progressive politicians can't win those younger voters back. But one thing should be abundantly clear by now. Paul- Pierre Polyever is playing to win, and he may have found a new way to do it. So there you go oh no no one's ever tried this
2: before (laughs) this is this is a brand new strategy it's not as old as like democratic politics
3: yeah the strategy of trying to win elections (laughs) by getting more votes than the other again i think that was crazy you know machiavelli introduced into the western canon with the prince (laughs) is that allowed
0: Uh, (laughs) are you are you allowed to do that i'm not sure that's allowed um (laughs)
3: yeah. <laughs> if you stripped this piece of like the horseshoe theory stuff and you just made it about like Polly Everett is is like a, he's he's undertaking like a different strategy than his two predecessors maybe arguably a different one than Harper did as well, which was also a very like suburban driven kind of like boring middle of the road strategy. And instead he's trying to add voters like new voters, bring them in from outside like that could be a reasonable piece you could say and and some of them might be younger and like there's like conservatism is is like quite like adaptable and malleable and it's like very it's been flexible with its rhetoric to appeal to people but like because like the author just can't help himself and he has to be like well actually the left is really just the same as the (laughs) right you know the the piece is uh I'm going to go on a limb and say it's not very good and I, I don't agree with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the most even-handed I think we've ever been at the end of a column. So uh, thank you for that, Luke. I also think it's a it's a terrible column. I think Max used it to score points on people that he thinks are mean and bad. And I think I think yes. that if you read this not knowing much about politics in Canada, I think you would come away with not knowing much about politics in Canada, which is kind of like it defeats the purpose of reading it i think it
1: leaves me feeling very
0: drained <laughs> I, wasn't
2: that wasn't that a brilliant essay
0: <laughs> by the national observer's <laughs> lead columnist yes i would say it was effervescent um <laughs> let's move on from it though luke at this point of the show we try and cleanse the palate by talking about things that we read or wrote or watched or, you know, p- games that we played that we would recommend to our listeners.
3: That's a great ritual. I'm going to steal that from my podcast because we uh, we watch a lot of dog shit on <laughs> Michael and us. And, and so uh, I like the idea of, a, like, what are some things we like? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. We, we actually stole it from Kino
0: Lefter.
2: <laughs> Their re, re comrade. Yeah, issues. we call it plugs um, and recs. We just though. call it something...
0: Yeah, Um, so so I'm going to let Jeremy go first. Or can you tell us about some things that you might have written that you want to share with uh, the folks at home?
2: Wow, how courteous. Um, Yeah, I wrote a piece in a little outlet that our guests may have heard of called Jacobin about Danielle Smith, the batch hit insane front frontrunner front runner of the uh, UCP leadership race here in Alberta. I think I referred her as a conspiracy theorist and podcaster, which I think is how she should be referred to. I also wrote a piece for Ricochet for the first time uh, about uh, uh, Pierre Polyev's lack of any climate policy and how that's a deliberate strategy. And in terms of stuff other people wrote, the New York Times, actually, you, you guys hear never this? heard of it, New York no. Times? Yeah, I like to call it the New York. Crimes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Nice, <laughs> but uh, you can you can use that. Um, <laughs> but uh, they did some great reporting on these uh, uh, yeshivas in New York City, uh, these uh, schools for ultra-orthodox Jews that are publicly funded, and turns out uh, they're not teaching them English or math or science. It's all just like uh, religious studies in in Yiddish. But yeah, no. So that was some great reporting and uh, it's shining a light on something I think a lot of people were afraid to talk about because, you know, there are natural sensitivities uh, when you're talking about, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews who are even looked down upon by, uh, you know, um, secular Jews like, like uh, you know, the environment I was raised in. And of course, um, ultra orthodox Jews are also more likely to be targeted for anti Semitic hate crimes because they they're visibly Jewish, unlike me, where you actually have to talk to me for a few minutes to realize I'm Jewish. Um, so yeah, that that's it for me. Awesome.
0: Well, I'll pass it over to Luke then. Luke, do you have anything that you'd want to recommend to our audience?
3: I'll just throw one thing out here. I mean, this is hardly, this is not, a not exactly a recent uh, bit of writing, but um, I want to read you guys uh, three sentences from a little known novel uh, called Moby Dick uh, that I've been enjoying uh, recently. I mean, I know it's like, it's like almost embarrassing to be like, Oh yeah, Moby Dick is a great book. But uh, like, if you haven't read it, it is, it is truly extraordinary. So if you're listening to this, and you haven't read it. The prose are are absolutely extraordinary, and um, I keep having to stop and like make like a note because like there are passages that are so memorable. And there's one description, uh, just a few sentences here, that I've been thinking about since I uh, came across it of um, the dining on the on the ship. Uh, so Melville writes. In strange contrast to the hardly tolerable constraint and nameless invisible domineerings of the captain's table was the entire carefree license and ease, the almost frantic democracy of those inferior fellows, the harpooners. While their masters, the mates, seemed afraid of the sound of the hinges of their own jaws, the harpooners chewed their food with such a relish that there was a report, explosive noise like a rifle to it. They dined like lords. They filled their bellies like Indian ships all day loading with spices. So, yeah... Herman Melville. Going to go out on a limb, and say pretty good writer. Fantastic, better than Max Fawcett.
2: I read uh, Moby Dick once uh, years ago, and I just it didn't like. Um, I don't know, it just didn't do it for me. I, I I thought it was very dry, but I've been told by many people that I'm wrong, so I've uh, decided well, I will. It's be a
3: really true. weird book because it's like he'll he'll do like he'll riff for like eight or nine pages just on like the fact that the whale is white and like, what does whiteness, what does it mean? And like, and then, and then like, you know, he'll do like a few pages where it's just like, I'm reading an encyclopedia about whaling. This is really (laughs) odd. And then there'll be these flourishes where they're just like full of like allusions to like, you know, things that you would only know about from like Roman and Greek poetry and stuff like that. So yeah, it is. It's a very strange book, but um, I uh, I think it's I think it's worth uh, giving a chance. I
0: love the concept of any book about a man trying to get revenge on an animal. I think that is a fun concept that is not explored in uh, in modern contemporary literature very often. Yeah, I haven't read that one ever. I might check it out. I did get a book, though, in the mail the other day. Um, it's a book called The Dead Center by Luke Savage. Uh, it just came in, so I'm only about 20 pages in. I have enjoyed those 20 pages. Um, I recommend it to everybody. Um, I wish I could give it a better recommendation because I haven't read the majority of the pages yet. But uh, it's a... Well, it starts getting pretty dodgy around page 21. Oh, just a yeah, heads up. It really falls off. eh? Okay, well... Well, the first twenty pages are great um and that's that's really all i've I've had time to read this week, other than uh a few disparaging things about the queen, but uh, I think I recommended those in the last episode so uh Marino, how about you
1: uh spare me if you've heard this before, dear <laughs> listeners, but I'm in a fugue state because I'm too tired <laughs> from going to the manufacturing consent mines and cog spinning facilities. All day. Uh, I did uh, recently get a large tattoo on my left leg of an octopus, and it was cool. And it was like six hours of sitting, and it got pretty torturous at the end, uh, to the point where every time the tattoo artist would pick up the needle, I was like, oh God, not again. But I also elected to get it, and it was worth it in the end. So very interesting, like, I guess, experience. Recommended if you're into it.
0: <laughs> Everybody who's listening to this has to get a tattoo or you're no longer. Picture didn't Yeah, happen. send us pictures of your tattoos afterwards Soon. as well. Get tattoos of us. We should, like, we're a big podcast now. You guys should get tattoos. Maybe. We, dozens of people are listening to this.
2: Please do not get a tattoo of me. I That would be you,
3: weird. You and- say dozens of people are listening to this, Eric. And I mean, that's so obviously wrong. This podcast is listened to and valued <laughs> by millions of Canadians. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thank you, Luke, so much for joining us. This was a blast. And please come back sometime soon.
3: Yeah, it's a pleasure, guys. Let's uh, do it again when I'm not recovering from a concussion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. See you guys.
2: Bye bye. It's Big Shiny Takes, the only anti-free speech podcast. Big Shiny Takes, reading garbage for your brain. It's Big Shiny Takes with Jeremy Aragon Marino. Big Shiny Takes our sure to entertain. Are sure to entertain.